and um, I'm just a new congregant, and I love reading scripture, so I'm really glad to be here today. Today's readings are from Ecclesiastes, Colossians, and Matthew. Listen for the word of God. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 12, 12 to 14, and 2, 18 to 23. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I, the teacher, when king over Israel in Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun. And see, all is vanity and a chasing after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to those who come behind me. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish. Yet, they will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned and gave up my heart to despair concerning all the toils of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What do mortals get from all the toil and strain with which they toil under the sun? For all their days are full of pain and their work is vexation, even at night. Their minds do not rest. This also is vanity. Colossians 3, 1 to 4, a little more hopeful. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ, is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And Matthew 16, 19 to 21. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. My name's Jerry Schoberg. I'm married to that one. <clears throat> I'm guessing that uh, some of you who might be less familiar with the church scene may be asking a couple of questions about the first scripture that was read just now, that bit from the book of Ecclesiastes about vanity of vanities, all is vanity and a chasing after the wind. And the questions might be something like these. Really? Is that in the Bible? And why in the world would you read that out in church? Those of you who are more familiar with the church scene may be asking some questions about this text too, such as, really? Is that in the Bible? <laughs> and why in the world would you read that out in church? So, yes, it is in the Bible. We don't often read from the book of Ecclesiastes, but it is on the United Church's lectionary of readings for today, so we'll blame them. <clears throat> so we should probably spend a few minutes trying to figure out what it has to say. I suppose we don't read from Ecclesiastes very much because clearly the writer is not one of the leading optimists of his day. He's struggling with finding purpose and permanence in life. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see all is vanity and a chasing after the wind. He considers that all he has worked for and accomplished in life and then realizes that he is going to have to leave it all to someone else who has not worked for it and who may not have the wisdom to appreciate the gains that have been made. In other words, he is distraught at the transience of life. What is it that lasts and that gives life meaning? Although the writer doesn't give us his name, 
he portrays himself as though he were King Solomon. Calls himself the son of David, king over Israel, someone with exceptional wisdom. Most scholars are agreed, however, for a variety of reasons, that the book was written anonymously somewhere between 200 and 300 B.C., that is, some 700 years after King Solomon. And it turns out that understanding this is important for appreciating the struggle the writer is having. Solomon was a king of great accomplishments. Under his reign, he built a magnificent palace and strengthened the governing structures, affording it by instituting taxation. He expanded the borders of Israel. He built, uh, he, he, had a, he had created a standing army. And of course, he built a magnificent temple. Indeed, for hundreds of years, the very presence of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem was a symbol to Israelites that all was well and there was no need to worry. But in the third century BC, Solomon's temple had been destroyed and the one that replaced it was much less grand. The nation of Israel had been defeated by the Babylonians. And there was no longer any army. Israelites had spent time living in exile, and now they were back living in Palestine, but under the rule of a foreign king. In other words, Israel's symbols of confidence and permanence had received a serious blow. It is not at all surprising, therefore, that the writer of Ecclesiastes comes across as somewhat distraught. What he's doing is he's taking the despondency of the nation due to the loss of temple and loss of national independence and extending it to all of life. All of life is fleeting. There's no permanence. I suspect if our writer lived today, he would be even more distraught given the rapid change of life, transitions, Traditions being exchanged for flavor of the month fads, the uncertain futures due to wars, and the volatility in financial markets, institutions that we have worked for and supported for years now disappointing us through scandal or abandoning their vision, the church in which people once found solid ground being given up by many, Perhaps some of us can relate. It's not as though he thinks everything is completely meaningless, however. On one of the occasions when he comes out of his doldrums, he says, I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and enjoy themselves and live as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. That's a bright spot. 
So even though despondent, he still finds life and work to be gifts of God, to be enjoyed. But still it seems we are left with more despondency than hope. The New Testament readings we had this morning bring a new aspect to this. In reading Ecclesiastes, it's clear that the writer's perspective is limited to earthly life. Both the wise and the fool meet the same end. The righteous and the unrighteous both end up in the ground. Paul seems to go beyond this when he writes, set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And Jesus says something Similar, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Both Jesus and Paul have in view a life beyond this world, a life hidden with Christ in God, and treasure that is stored up for us in heaven. This seems to be a perspective that the writer of Ecclesiastes does not have. That's not to say that Ecclesiastes no longer has anything to say. Jesus' parable, you might remember, about the rich man who builds bigger barns to amass his wealth, but who loses everything when he dies prematurely fits right in with Ecclesiastes. But there's just one question I have with regard to this teaching about seeking things that are above or storing up for myself treasures in heaven. What does that look like? It sounds like very spiritual language. But what, in fact, are Paul and Jesus asking me to do here? I think the Christian tradition that I grew up in would have answered this in terms of piety. Going to church, being involved in church activities, reading my Bible, praying, telling people about Jesus, etc., it was a kind of reward system for doing spiritual things, quote, spiritual things. I now think that those kinds of things, while good, are not what is at the heart of biblical spirituality. Biblical spirituality has more to do with character than with doing specific good deeds although, of course, the two are related. But fundamentally, it's not so much about following rules as it is about becoming a particular kind of people. So I'm going to make a suggestion here. 
that seeking things that are above is about gaining a perspective that sees beyond the limits of this world, that there are things of value beyond one's net worth, and that laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven is about nurturing particular character qualities. And of the many character qualities that we could talk about, I'm going to suggest three, three qualities that are embedded throughout Scripture. And they are generosity, compassion, and faithfulness. I'm sure there's much more to laying up treasures in heaven than this, but at least it's a place to start and a way to ground our discussion. Generosity, compassion, and faithfulness. There are rules in the Bible that express these qualities, uh, like harvesting, not harvesting your grain to the very edge of the field, but leaving some grain standing for the poor, or welcoming aliens in the land, or like not charging interest on loans to poor people. But what we're talking about here is not exactly following specific rules. It's about how we are characterized in all kinds of activities what kind of people we are. Put it this way, it's about how someone will sum up your life in your eulogy. You could say it's about following the way of Jesus. Jesus demonstrated generosity in welcoming people on the margins to share meals at his table. He demonstrated compassion by healing the sick and forgiving those who had sinned. He demonstrated faithfulness by remaining true to his mission, even though it would mean he would die for it. But perhaps even more importantly, these qualities describe the character of God. In the church we were in, uh, that we were part of in, in uh, Vancouver, every year the staff would go away on a retreat over a weekend, and they would often ask me to preach the sermon for that Sunday, and a very particular sermon they would ask me to preach, the one on giving. <clears throat> the truth was that none of them who earned their living from the church, wanted to preach on that topic, lest they sound like some television evangelist or shyster who preys on gullible people for their money. But they were very happy to put me in that position. <clears throat> well, at least I didn't earn my living from the church. As I thought about the topic of charitable giving, I realized that done properly, 
It's quite appropriate to appeal to people to give financially to support institutions they believe in. Of course, it depends on how much money you have, but for most of us, there comes a point in life where we realize we need to take some responsibility for the various institutions we participate in and to contribute to them, time and money, if we want to see them continue. It's a pragmatic approach, and I think one that's totally valid. But as I thought about the matter further of giving financially, I realized that there was a deeper and more profound motivation, namely that generosity is important because that's what God is like. If we don't give, then we don't become generous. And if we don't become generous, then we don't share in the character of God. I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on anyone here. If we want to share in the character of God, which is a character of generosity, then we need to be generous. And here it matters not at all how much we have. It's about being generous with whatever we have. In the book of Exodus, God reveals himself to Moses in this way. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Graciousness or generosity, mercy or compassion, and faithfulness. These are character qualities of God. And it is by participating in that character that we lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. It's a completely different way of understanding wealth. We still need earthly wealth to put food on the table, have a roof over our heads, and rent tubes for floating down the river. But all of this wealth will seem to be quite fleeting if there isn't a wealth of character as well. So the invitation this morning is this. Rejoice in the gifts of God, whatever they may be. Find confidence and permanence in the character of God. And place value in growing in the character of God in our own lives. Amen.